Welcome back, everyone. This is season two, episode three of So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Reeves. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing all things low back. We're going to start off with evaluation, talk a little bit about treatment, and then get into some controversial topics when it comes to the treatment of low back. Mike, introduce kind of our treatment paradigm, how we were trained at Pitt as far as systematically going and evaluating the low back and creating a specific treatment for each individual patient. Yeah. So and we kind of talked about it last week with breaking people down into different categories to kind of help match your treatments a little bit more. And so the big thing to kind of break them down into is do they respond to some sort of directional preference? Kind of within that, you know, your flexion extension, you know, your, your kind of disc pathologies uh, will tend to be more of that extension, that kind of McKenzie approach, potentially your, you know, stenotic patients, potentially more, more your flexion then you have kind of your like mobilization manipulation category, which tends to be kind of more your kind of like active people without ridiculous signs. And then just kind of your like stabilization. And then I think one thing to, to kind of note is that, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with kind of this with this rough approach. And I think it was studied primarily in the like acute low back pain population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of falls into some topics that we talked about in season one, where your acute low back pain is going to be, I don't want to say predictable, but it should respond in predictable patterns if they are a good candidate for PT. Whereas your chronic low back pain due to central sensitization processes is going to be a little bit more unpredictable in addition to psychosocial variables, fear avoidance in regards to certain movements, stress, nutrition, all those other variables that can contribute to a chronic pain state is going to muddy the waters and create a less predictable response to some of your evaluative measures and some of your classification testing. So Mike, let's um, start off by talking about the mobilization classification in regards to looking at the pelvic and sacral components that we were taught, but I've kind of drifted away from. I do think about it and consider it, but I don't know how much I invest into like a sacral torsion or a, like a nominate rotation. I know that there's a lot of evidence that kind of questions your reliability and validity I still incorporate them into my examination approach because it does help guide me towards certain mobilization or manipulation techniques that if I do see a pattern, patients tend to respond well to it. That's more anecdotal, not based on evidence. And that's going to be lumbopelvic manipulation. I do use what's called the Sabolka criteria. And that's going to be kind of your classic standing flexion test, the asymmetrical seated landmarks, your long sit test where... Um, you're kind of palpating the inferior aspect of the medial malleoli and having them sit up and, and measuring symmetry. And then the prone knee bend test, looking at any asymmetries that occur with that. Again, all of these tests are so subjective. There's not a lot of good reliability between raters. And even, you know, I might go back and palpate an asymmetry one time and then double check myself. And, you know, next thing I know, they're even. So I don't put too much investment into these techniques. As far as the sacral torsion, it, it can get really complicated. The evidence just isn't there and it doesn't really help me too much. I mean, I can get very specific and choose a specific muscle energy technique based on the type of sacral torsion and, and what I'm in theory trying to do biomechanically. But again, I feel like it's a lot of time consumed for a very questionable treatment method. Mike, do you, do you typically use or really diagnose a lot of these like sacral torsion and nominate rotation type things and 
and really run with those things. I, ha- I have a feeling they're, they're very biomechanically oriented theories to explain to your patient that can create a lot of fear avoidance. So I really try to avoid these type of conversations that are going to create a feeling of there's something wrong with me. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that kind of tends to be one of my like grasping at straws interventions later on. And I just kind of like poke around, feel some things. And I'm like, well, nothing else has worked. So like, maybe I'll try some crazy sacral muscle energy thing and potentially try it out and not tell the patient I'm doing anything like targeting their sacrum because it's twisted. I'll be like, I'm just going to try this like little thing here. Like sometimes it helps calm down your pain. It is essentially how I word it. But I'd say, I, I mean, that's incredibly rare that I do it. But yeah, I mean, I think trying to dive into all the sacral torts and stuff, I think you're going to, your brain's going to hurt and your results probably aren't going to be much better. Yeah. And I think the the crazy part about all of like the sacral torsion stuff and the innominate rotation is that anecdotally, even as students and as clinicians, you might get that subgroup that walks into your clinic that responds favorably to some of those like lumbopelvic manipulations, even some of those sacral muscle energy techniques. And you might perform that technique and bam, they're better and it blows your mind, it blows their mind. So those random little incidents where you get success with those techniques really makes you become almost like a believer in them. But at the same time, it's just one of those things where it's so hard to identify and accurately subgroup these patients. From a research standpoint, as far as creating some continuity and and reproducible results in a study. But anecdotally, across the board, I feel like there are clinicians that get success relatively quickly. Now, the, the bad part about this is once you get success with those techniques, I feel like there's some clinicians that just apply that approach to every single patient, hoping that they're going to catch their, you know, 40 or 50% that maybe respond to either sacral or, or pelvic techniques, and then they miss out on the other 50%. That's why I really try not to invest too much into it. But I think also the important part, like you mentioned, if you do suspect like, if you do suspect that these components could be relevant. Even though they're not too backed by research, you could still go for a low risk, high reward technique. For example, in my older population, I might use a pelvic and sacral muscle energy technique that's just going to be activating uh, hip flexor and contralateral hip extensor. And then I just flip sides and then activating the external rotators, abductors to target the sacrum. And this is just a gentle isometric, you know, five reps, eight second holds. So as far as my paradigm for the patient, all I tell them is, you know, when you have pain, you get some inhibition of the muscles. This is just a general technique to lightly activate the muscles. It can help decrease pain, get some muscles firing again. And it's been shown to help improve range of motion if you have a certain group of tests that that are positive. Again, the tests alone don't tell me anything about you anatomically or biomechanically. But together, they can point me in the direction of certain patients that will respond favorably to these techniques. And at the same time, it's very low risk because you're just contracting your muscle and this can potentially help decrease your symptoms to get you moving pain-free again, at least in the short term. Yeah, I agree. I think that's perfect. Yeah. And then as far as the lumbar spine and mobilization, because I really like to group that that pelvic sacral group just into the mobilization category. So these are going to be, like you said, your acute low back pain. They lift the box, they're weightlifting in the gym. They kind of get that acute low back pain. And again, is the mobility the overall problem? Probably not. More of a symptom of a acute physiological pain response as far as uh, joint stiffness. You've got peripheral sensitization occurring. 
central sensitization. So again, the end game is going to be getting them moving again to calm down the, the peripheral sensitization and prevent any long-term central sensitization processes. But again, in the short term, you do want to restore that joint mobility from the acute pain process. So the lumbar mobilization classification is actually one of the few clinical prediction rules that's actually been validated. So for our listeners, that's going to include duration of symptoms less than 16 days, at least one hip with internal rotation greater than 35 degrees, lumbar hypomobility during spring testing, no symptoms below the knee, and then low fear avoidance with an FABQ less than 19. And that's important just because you don't want to do a high velocity, low amplitude thrust mobilization to a patient with high fear avoidance. That's just going to create a more traumatic experience for them you might have to do a more gentle and gradual low-grade mobilization approach. But I do use a fair amount of lumbar mobilization, especially when they hit you know, three out of the four. If you don't have symptoms below the knee, you have acute low back pain, and I feel some stiffness in your lumbar spine, you're already at three for four. I probably will direct some type of mobilization or grade five thrust mobilization to the lumbar spine. And that is the one that I really do see success with when they, when they fit that pattern. Yeah. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that specific to manipulation versus like just kind of like mobilization it's, or mobilization kind of like you're kind of everything? I think that might be manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thrust yeah. mobilization for that category. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in a state like Pennsylvania where you can't say manipulation, remember grade five thrust mobilizations. Yeah. It's, it's across the board. I've even heard some people use adjustments, which I stay away from because I feel like adjustment creates a different paradigm. It, it adds more of like that chiropractic where the, the vertebra is, uh, what's the word that they use? Not dislocated. Um, Subluxed or whatever. Yeah, it's like a subluxation and compressing nerves that decreases function in their body. That's a whole different box that I don't even want to open. So I try to stay away from adjustment. Occasionally I'll use manipulation, but I try to stick to thrust mobilization. And that's just semantics. But I mean, language matters. So it's important to, to talk yeah. about. So I think that's kind of like your slam dunk category is somebody's acute low back pain, thrust mobilization, bam, you're the hero, move on. That's one of my favorite things to treat. Let's. Yeah. Uh, so Dan, I'm curious to hear your kind of thoughts on, so the one thing is like everything in that kind of breakdown like makes sense. And then there's just like the random thing of at least one hip with internal rotation greater than 35 degrees. Do you think there's anything to that? Or you think it was just in this study, they randomly found that and then there it is in, in, in our in our criteria? Yeah, I think it could go either way. I think, and this is going to be completely from experience, anecdotal again, is typically when I see a pelvic and sacral component, that's going to be like more of like that Fortin sign, you have pain at that uh, junction where the ilium meets the sacrum. Typically, I see that low back pain component paired with hip arthritis, hip OA. It usually hits in a triad. It hits like the SI area, it hits the lateral hip, and then it'll move to the groin or in a different pattern. But usually when it's progressive in older individuals, they'll have all three. They'll have at least a history of, you know, one-sided low back pain, lateral hip pain, and then onset of groin pain. They might have diagnosed OA. So I'm thinking if their hip internal rotation is limited, there is some like hip arthritic component, which is usually paired with some type of lower back you know, degenerative arthritic component, which may be less responsive to a thrust mobilization. Again, that's completely just me speculating. But again, 33% of people that have low back pain end up with some type of hip pain and vice versa. They're very intimately related. And I think if it's more of a degenerative type of condition where they have, you know, hip arthritis, and they might be an older population, they may just not be as responsive to thrust mobilization. 
Yeah, that that's kind of my thoughts as well. I mean, if you have, you know, both your hips have internal rotation less than 35 degrees, probably a good chance you're not the most mobile, most active human being, either are overweight or have some other health stuff going on, um, most likely, and they're just less likely to be a, a a responder no matter what category you put them in so that's just kind of my thoughts right let's um let's move on to the directional preference category we'll start off with the extension directional preference i think this one can get tricky because nothing in the clinic ever works out the way it is in the textbook so this one confuses a lot of people and i think the hard part with this one the biggest pitfall that i've seen is anytime anyone sees or hears like one-sided distal pain out outside of the low back they automatically assume disc without really going through their decision making process so the one thing that i would always caution clinicians to consider is that joints and muscles can refer pain along anywhere that their nerve root supplies the joint or the muscle so the most common one is going to be your si joint that is innervated by L5-S1. So if your SI joint is painful, it can refer pain to your leg, down the thigh into your lower leg. And it's going to be of a different quality. It might be like a, like a sharp shooting type of pain um, that kind of comes and goes quickly with a certain movement. It's going to be a low-grade ache type of pain that's kind of resting in the background. Usually when I see a true disc, same thing like we said for the for the neck, it's going to be associated with some type of paresthesia, more of that pins and needles, numbness and tingling, reflex changes, and some type of motor muscle weakness. I really caution myself to think about what is causing the peripheral symptoms. And oftentimes when you have low back pain, you've got inhibition of the surrounding musculature, the glutes, core, and now you're increasing the demand, let's say, on the plantar, on the plantar flexors during push-off because you may not be getting as, as much hip extension during gait. So someone could have easily calf pain from overuse because they've been walking a lot while they've had low back pain. So thinking about m muscular contributors as far as overuse, thinking about referred pain from joints is also advisable. And then again, once you get that clear-cut picture of alter reflexes, paresthesia, then you can start to go down that that directional preference extension bias path. Would you agree with that, Mike? Do you feel like that happens fairly often or Yes and no. I mean I think the the big thing that we're looking for with these with these patients, especially with like peripheral symptoms, is can we do anything to change their symptoms and like lessen them? Mm -hmm. So I think that I mean that that's kind of ten, how I tend to go with people with peripheral symptoms, like figure out if there's certain things they can do that actually decrease that sensation of whatever the heck they're feeling in their leg. Because I think most of them are going are gonna to kind of calm down on their own. So if you can kind of give them the stuff to maybe help it calm down a little bit quicker, that's normally how I tend to go. I, I don't get quite as caught up in like nerve root versus disc versus right. X, Y, and Z. I mean, I don't really have any, anything else on that. It's just right. kind of. I think I need to you kind of need to follow the ones with, you know, your true neurological changes versus just your kind of like radiating leg pain. Right. And what I'm referring to is sometimes when we hear radiating pain, we we assume it's going to be an extension directional preference. So I think a lot of us are subjective to confirmation bias. So for example, someone says they have radiating leg pain, you get them into extension and, and you ask them, do you have leg pain? And they say no, then we automatically assume, okay, they're extension. But did you test them before? Or did they have leg pain before? Is it only during certain incident incidences? So it's it's important to be very specific with your questioning to make sure that you're not falling into that confirmation bias of already assuming their extension and then kind of guiding your questions in your treatment direction in a way that, that confirms that hypothesis. 
So moving on from that, the, the recommendation that I would make, if you feel like it's a true like nerve root involvement, they're going to respond to extension directional preference. You want to test the extension in weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing. Usually if it's disc-related, that weight-bearing position is going to be more difficult to centralize just because of the influence of gravity creating a compressive force through the disc. Once you get into non-weight-bearing, it's going to be a little bit easier to centralize. Now, the next thing I'm going to describe isn't listed in the treatment-based classification, but having worked with a lot of patients with low back pain and a lot of radiating symptoms, nerve root involvement, disc involvement. If you really truly feel like your patient has disc involvement and that's where their radiating symptoms are coming from, but you're not getting a response from extension, then you want to look at what's called a relative lateral component. Now, this is very theoretical. It's only based off a single case study, but what you're assuming here is that the disc is in instead of protruding posteriorly, is protruding laterally. And what you want to do is you want to introduce side bending. So what I do is I lay them over a half foam and then I bring their legs back into extension with the top leg kind of bent and hooked just for comfort and have them lay in side bending and see if that centralizes their symptoms. And then you can add a little bit of like an extension backward rotation type component as they are laying on that half foam to try to centralize their symptoms. So if you're interested in that case study, just shoot us a message, we can send it to you. But relative lateral component is something that I've found success with as far as centralizing some of those discs that you would, ex that you would expect to respond to extension, but just don't. And uh, for that, for the people who aren't familiar with that, do you put the symptomatic side down or do you put the symptomatic side up? So you want to do the symptomatic side down. You want to imagine that that disc would be bulging to the side where the nerve root's being impinged or being pressed upon. And then by putting the pressure and closing down on that side, you would be relieving the pressure on the nerve root. And again, purely theory, whether that all happens, I really don't try to get into the details with patients as far as those biomechanical clinical decision-making theories. I kind of just say, when you have this issue, usually you find more comfort on a certain side by just taking some of the pressure off of the nerve or um, taking some of the pressure off the irritated structures. Yeah. And that to me is kind of like a similar theory to how like some of the McKenzie people will do like your extension, then your extension with kind of like your hip shift right, hip shift left, and see if any is like better than the other. You're just trying to find a position that seems to centralize the patient's pain and make them feel better. Right. Right. Anything else you wanted to add for the extension directional preference there, Mike? I mean, not, not necessarily. Uh, I think one thing is that I like to just with all my patients, I like to just get them moving. Yeah. Um, so because they're an extension directional preference, unless they're like crazy flared up and all I want to do is just try and calm things down. I'll also add in some simple kind of like neutral spine work. If they're like, okay, I'll work on like, you know, things like sit to stands or something like that, like a couple of like functional movements, maybe like a little bit of like a hip hinge. Um, just so like, since you're kind of flared up right now, we, I want you to kind of be able to do your things, but like, it seems like things kind of get flared up when you like, bend forward to get out of a chair. So why don't we just work on doing that without flaring up your symptoms just for right now? Not to say that this is how you have to do it forever, but while you're in pain, why don't we just play around with this stuff so your next couple of days are a little bit more comfortable? Yeah, I think that's that's a good topic to bring up is just education regarding, you know, avoiding flexion temporarily and then trying to talk about different ways to do their daily activities to prevent that acute injury exacerbation, but then also explaining that, hey, this is only a temporary modification to get you out of pain. And again, this brings us back to kind of the whole crux of what we set up in season one with discussing stage-based classifications. Everything we're talking about is stage one pain modulation. So once they are out of that acute pain phase, then stage two is not defined. It's it's fair game. It's 
you know, strengthening, global strengthening, um, progressing to functional movements, functional activities, and that it's more of like an impairment-based approach. So usually my early technique is I start adding in like table work, just like so I'll do like bridging, abdominal activation, maybe some like lower extremity strengthening, just things to get get them strong, keep them moving, keep the muscles firing, but um, try to keep their pain down. Yep. Yeah. I, I think you kind of bring up some of those kind of basic ones that are going to be kind of similar for everyone as like exercises for like pretty much everyone with like low back pain you're like if you want to do ta bracing if that's your thing sure and, and we'll just um, dis- we'll discuss a little bit more about that there's some interesting studies that i that i do want to talk about when we get to like the treatment side so we'll cool. we'll jump into that let's move to the uh flexion directional preference category i feel like this one usually gets like pigeonholed as like stenosis therefore they are flexion i think it's it gets a little bit more trickier than that i think early on when you're learning how to manage low back pain it is nice to have a very simplistic classification but i think this flexion directional preference includes a lot of different layers outside of just they have stenosis this stenosis is compressing a nerve that's creating the bilateral leg pain i think this classification obviously is going to be your older individual will they have stenotic changes on imaging probably also what i see fall into this category is individuals that have what's what i refer to as a hinge point so that's going to be one part of their lumbar spine where they are extending over it the most so this is going to be like pinpoint centralized low back pain at that hinge point and then they kind of get that broad band that radiates across it like it just kind of aches all the way across and it's because their standing static posture is a extended position where the lumbar paraspinals are remaining in a shortened position for a prolonged period of time. Now, your muscles don't like being over-elongated or over-shortened for a prolonged period of time. And usually these individuals are going to respond to that flexion because one, it's going to offload the pressure on that lumbar facet. So you're going to decrease posterior lumbar facet loading at the hinge point. And then at the same time, they're going to be getting a stretch through their paraspinals. It's the same reason why they respond well to traction because, again, it's relieving that pressure off that lumbar vertebra that's being overloaded. So imagine you are hinging your body weight over a um, single unit or two single units where the posterior facets on that area are going to be overloaded statically. And this kind of matches, if you think about it, when you statically overload a bone, what occurs? You're going to create bony growth, which over time is what you see on the imaging, the degenerative changes. So I think those degenerative changes on imaging are less of a cause, but more of a symptom of prolonged static loading patterns. Yeah, um, I agree. So I think with those kind of like hinge point populations, um, at least like when I've seen them, their pain isn't normally like super like flared up. No, it's, 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 it's very low grade. Kind of like when I stand for a while, it just like hurts and I like, I don't know how to make it get better. And you say like, oh, well, it makes it feel better. I like just kind of sitting down, maybe like bending forward. It feels like a stretch, but kind of like a good stretch there. It's kind of like what I've seen with, with those people. So maybe you call it a flexion directional preference. Maybe you call it more of a, they just kind of need to get a little bit better awareness, be able to kind of vary their posture a little bit there, get them into a posterior pelvic tilt. Uh, I see a lot of those people which are just unable to kind of get into that posterior pelvic tilt position. Their you know, core just is unable to do it. So I, 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 I guess you could call that a flexion directional preference um, if they're like super flared up. But I most of those people with that hinge point, I tend to almost jump to like... Yeah, they're like a hybrid stage two type of... Yeah, yeah, they're kind of like a hybrid, like one, two, where it's like, if you're super flared up, it's really bad, maybe try doing some of these, right. um, but they're like 
quickly into stage two, I feel like. Yeah. And I think this is um, an interesting population because you will see it in younger individuals sometimes, especially um, younger individuals who start working out and they don't really have uh, as much insight into form. I see this a lot with squatting. You're going to put that bar on your back. Then a lot of people are going to hyperextend through their lower back as they drop down into the squat and almost go into like excessive lumbar extension where they are loading not only the weight of the bar, but their body weight onto that single hinge point. And then these are the people that walk away from the squat rack with that like paraspinal tightness that you get after, you know, your four or five sets of some moderate to heavy squatting. And that's because they are passively loading the lumbar facets to create stability. Paraspinals are being overloaded during that extension moment used to maintain them in that position. And then I think the other thing I want to clarify here is most clinicians who think of posterior pelvic tilt, let's say with the squatting example that I just used, most people would be put off by thinking about using a posterior pelvic tilt during a squat. So this is something that I struggled with for a while because when I mentored with one of my clinical instructors in my final internship, she was pretty big on posterior pelvic tilt and I did not understand it. I'm like, why would you want someone's lumbar spine to be in a flex position? This doesn't make sense. And once she clarified her point of view for me, it made complete sense. She was utilizing posterior pelvic tilts with these, you know, hyperextended or lumbar extended position folks who had that hinge point and the posterior pelvic tilt was gentle only to get them to about neutral. Now, it's not about being perfect and being in neutral, but you don't want to be excessively in either direction, whether it's flex or extended. You want to be somewhere where that static loading distribution is somewhat larger versus smaller in, a, in an extreme position. So when we're introducing posterior pelvic tilt, it's not that they're rounding their lower back out into a flex position. They're going from a lot of extension to a little bit of extension or ideally in hy a hypothetical neutral. Yeah, I think that's good. I think with the with like squatting, that's kind of one of those like tricky ones, right? Where you can you'll read all sorts of things on you know back position not mattering and um, all this stuff. But I think if someone's kind of cranking into that you know excessive overdoses that even to the untrained eye, you go that nah, maybe that's not great. And that person comes in with back pain, then yes, absolutely. Um, the big thing with like squatting and deadlifting and th and things like that is like as they're doing the motion is their back moving if they're able to kind of just brace and then go and as they do the motion it's kind of that true hip hinge for their back pretty good those people tend to not get injured as much as those that as they're kind of doing their squat motion they have more movement at their low back so yeah and that's a different that's a whole different component in the movement analysis of the squat as well is like you were mentioning if they're creating a lot of lumbar flexion extension rather than a true hip hinge then they're going to be increasing the demand on their low back musculature and depending on the load can create injury. And then I think it's also important to classify uh, the statements that I made previously and say that movement analysis for injury and movement analysis for performance is very different. Um, so if you are a power lifter, you're going to see more power lifters that are actually hyperextended or extended through that lumbar spine to create stability. And this is a beneficial thing because if you're lifting a heavy load, at one point you do want to lock out certain segments. From a performance standpoint, it's going to create stability through the lumbar spine and allow you to drive through those other components that are required, such as knee extension and hip extension. Yeah, and you'll see kind of like almost like the opposite. I feel like I've seen with like heavy deadlifting for some of those competitive athletes where they end up actually kind of flexing the spine a little bit more than you probably see people do at the gym. And they're just kind of bracing and just going as hard as they can and just trying to get the weight up. I mean, not ideal from like a injury prevention standpoint, but when you're trying to deadlift 800 pounds one time, you know, you just kind of do everything you can to get it up there. Right.
right? And then I think um, when discussing the flexion directional preference, it kind of falls back into a previous pattern that we discussed. When you see that radiating leg pain, let's say they have bilateral posterior thigh pain, bilateral lower leg pain. I see this a lot with older individuals have fallen to that flexion directional preference. They've got really poor hip extensor strength. And what I really think is happening here is they're having overactivity of their hamstrings and calves as far as contributions during gait or activity, and they're not getting a lot of gluteal contributions. So again, don't fall into the trap of thinking that their bilateral radiating leg pain is stenotic in nature or some type of nerve compression in nature. Sometimes this just can be as a result of chronic pain processes, you have local muscular inhibition, and over time your body develops new strategies that increase the demands on other muscles to help get the job done. So I think you want to obviously add your, your hip strengthening. Then you also want to try to calm down the hamstring and gastroc irritability. And then again, strengthen those to build resiliency to future activity. Yeah. And one thing I found for like, if I really want to get the glutes going more so if they're kind of those people that I'm like, you, you're just, your, your butt just doesn't do anything. Um, or like actually want to target the, the like glute max or stuff. I'll just kind of put their knees wider than their feet it tends to decrease kind of hamstring activation and kind of have them drive through like their actual glute muscles more. And there, yeah, there's a study to back that up that having your feet hip width during a bridge actually increases glute max recruitment versus hamstring. So it's a, a good point to bring up as well as a theraband around the thighs just above the knee, creating an abduction moment is going to help recruit a little bit more glutes as well. Let's talk about traction because traction is going to be a different classification where if you feel like they're a flexion or extension preference, but they aren't centralizing. Again, depending where you studied and what part of the country you're in, there's a lot of varying views on traction. I'm actually a proponent. I think it for a certain population, it can be very effective, especially radiating pain if it's a disc or, or nerve root involvement in nature, even your spinal stenosis, but like we talked about, your significant like lumbar compression type syndromes as far as posterior facet loading, degenerative changes. And I think the hard part about traction is when you look at systematic reviews, and I think this is the case for most interventions in PT, you get one or two good clinical trials, you get one or two bad ones, then you get the systematic review meta-analysis says that it's too inconclusive, there's no good evidence. General exercise versus specific exercise, traction versus non-traction. All the systematic reviews come back inconclusive, there's no evidence for it. So I think with traction, the hard part is one, you have to identify the correct subgroup of patients. Then two, not only do you identify the correct subgroup, you've got about five different variables as far as position, hold time, amount of pull force, your duration of relaxation versus pull force. You've got so many different variables that can really change the outcome of your study. Just like we said in the cervical spine, even the angle of pull in the cervical spine can alter outcome of the intervention. So I think when you're designing a traction study, not only is it challenging from a single intervention standpoint, it's challenging from a controlled variable standpoint because you have to hit you have to hit all the variables correctly and appropriately for that specific patient. And I think some of this just comes from experience as far as seeing people that respond well to certain positions, certain loads, and then some of it is just kind of like educated guessing. You know, I usually go about 50% body weight. I, I set the machine to about 40 hold, 20 relaxation time. If they're an extension directional preference, I put them prone. If I think they're more flexion bias, I put them flexion with their legs propped kind of like on a stool. There's just so many things that you can change that alter the outcome. Yeah, um, I think it's that's a, definitely one of the one of the top ones because I mean, especially with a lot of people that don't have traction tables in their clinic. I currently don't have them, but I also work with young athletes now. So traction doesn't necessarily, it's not really a common tr intervention that I'll use. But I mean, historically, I think that 
I would tend to just try some manual traction first to see if I thought that it would be a good intervention. I think that's probably a good thing to kind of play around with, play around with some traction in supine, traction in prone, traction with their knees kind of in like a flex position you can kind of hook you know a little belt around like you know kind of like behind their knees with their when they're kind of in hook lying position and kind of see if you think potentially traction and flexion might be a little bit better um play around with it there and if they have some relief with you kind of doing it then that's when I would tend to kind of go to the table and say, all right, we're going to kind of, you know, put you on here. This will kind of do what I was doing, but just like a longer period of time. And you can just kind of relax on here and kind of let it do its thing. Let's move on to the stabilization category. I think we talked about most of the other ones. This one, I feel like is overdiagnosed as far as stage one. I mean, these are kind of like that hybrid stage one, stage two. I think the true ones that fit this category are going to be like your hypermobility or just like significant like rotational type weakness. Like you might put them in like that quadruped opposite arm, opposite leg position and just see a lot of trunk rotation as far as inability to stabilize themselves. I think these also fall into a static stress overload kind of like posterior facet loading category just because when you've got so much mobility and you don't have the strength to compensate for it then your body innately adopts a a static stress overload position just to create stability it wants to load joints to create stability mike what's your what's your take on this category yeah i agree i mean i think in in the absence of any sort of like super acute mechanism in the absence of ridiculous symptoms this just tends to be kind of our like crap category where we just throw throw everyone else in say oh well i guess you're just you know stabilization and i mean i don't think it's wrong to kind of call them that because i think general exercise is going to be good for most people with with low back pain but yeah i mean i think i definitely think that it's a little bit less of like a pure cookie cutter approach and you look and see like are these people with like that crazy hinge point like is potentially some targeted core work like super important for these people or is it just kind of like a you, know, you, just, you just have like a little bit of back pain and you didn't fit in, into these other categories. And so therefore you are now stabilization. So I don't think those people necessarily need as much kind of your like targeted core work as we might do for someone that might have that kind of significant hinge point type thing. But I don't know. That's just kind of my theory on things. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think um, I would like to see a graded exercise approach category be created or a classification. That way, if you do have your hypermobility patient, then you feel more comfortable putting them in that stabilization. But you don't want to put someone who's in a graded exercise approach in stabilization just based on the inherent paradigm of saying that you're a stabilization candidate is presuming that they're unstable. And that creates a very negative paradigm of treatment for the patient as far as thinking that my spine is unstable. So I would like to see a graded exercise approach classification to kind of fit these like high fear avoidance, you know, high start back tool patients that are at risk for developing chronic low back pain, but you're just going to use graded exercise as a means of decreasing peripheral and central sensitization, and then just progressing them to global strengthening in stage two. And then your stabiliz- your true stabilization ones that are, let's say, um, like I had a young athlete who played basketball and she literally had zero core strength, like her abdominal muscle, manual muscle test strength as far as like that le- double leg lowering while maintaining a posterior pelvic tilt was like a one or two out of five. And she was just like your your global core strengthening, your rotational strengthening, your anti-rotation exercises. And she did fine. She got better. But I think with like your younger athletes, that stabilization category is going to be less uh, lethal just because they're going to say, okay, my core is weak. That makes sense. I need a strong core to play my sport versus a 55 year old, you know, stay at home mom who is just living her life and overuses her back and is just trying to exercise her way out of repetitive stress overload injury. Yeah, I think that's perfect. 
All right. And then the last category that's less talked about, but I think is important is the active rest category. And this one's important because I feel with this category, a lot of newer clinicians really try to force patients into the other categories without being patient. And for active rest, if someone is painful in all directions, and I'm suspecting that maybe they're going to fall into a category, but they're just too irritable, I might just give very low intensity muscle activation exercise. That's going to be your active rest. Give them the education hey, I want you to live your normal life. Don't try to over rest. Do these few muscle activation exercises. And then as your symptoms calm down, we'll reassess and then our treatment plan will change. So don't be afraid just to give, you know, TA activation or abdominal activation, glute sets, very basic, you know, lower trunk rotations, reassess them the next visit. And as their symptoms decrease, move on. Yeah, I think uh, where I've historically seen that is in kind of like your chronic back pain population that has been seeing you already. And then it's kind of currently in like a crazy flare up, you know, they did some yard work over the weekend and they come in on Monday and they're like barely walking. You're like, what the heck happened? And then, so and at, at that point, that's like, all right, you know, maybe try one or two things, but like, all right, we just got to kind of let this thing calm down. Here's some simple things to do. Do you like ice? Do you like heat? You know, slap them on some of that if you want with, with some stim, if that if that's what they are into, if that's what you're into, whatever. But yeah, I mean, when they're that flared up, there's not really much you can do except just kind of wait for things to kind of calm back down the closer to their baseline. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And that's a good point to make is that not only can your eval potentially fall into that classification, but each week, each visit, your patient's classification can change based on what they go through. Like I have a lot of extension directional preferences where their symptoms centralize and just not having been exploring their full range of motion now develop a joint mobility deficit. They become a mobilization candidate. I mobilize them. Now they're out of pain modulation and in stage two. So I have the same patient that could potentially go through two different stage one classifications before they even get to stage two. So just something to consider there. And then as far as like your high risk, like red flag type things, obviously you've got like your saddle paresthesia, that type of stuff, which is going to be a very serious, you know, cauda equina syndrome. You want to also think about with your older women, there is a clinical prediction rule as far as ruling out or in vertebral fracture. It's actually more specific. So if they have these, they're going to, you're going to be able to rule in that they potentially have a vertebral fracture. And this is going to be women over the age of 52 without leg pain with a BMI less than 22 that are female and do not exercise regularly. So if you think about like your postmenopausal, potentially osteoporotic, there's going to be a nutritional component as far as the low BMI. And they have a insidious onset of low back pain without a you know definable mechanism. They're not responding to your treatment over the, like a visit or two. These are ones that you may want to send back to get radiographs just to rule out a vertebral fracture. And this is going to be the same for um, your older women with thoracic spine pain. If you see a hyperkyphotic patient that uh, has thoracic spine pain of insidious onset, you have to think about your constant static stress overload, that anterior portion of the vertebral body with a patient at risk for osteoporosis could potentially result in a vertebral fracture. So just things to consider. And then you also want to be on the lookout for your inflammatory low back pain. This is going to be your ankylosing spondylitis. Again, not too common. I've probably only seen a handful as far as ankylosing spondylitis, sacroiliitis. Again, your patterns will not match up. Your evaluation will be weird. You'll feel like, hey, like this is just, this is not normal. This is weird. Or it might just be a patient that you're treating. They come in, they exercise, they feel better, but they're kind of on that hamster wheel. They say, you know what? When I wake up in the morning, it's bad. I start moving. I come to PT. I feel good. But then every morning it's, it's unchanged. And this is going to be your individuals of age less than 40, insidious onset. It improves with exercise. It doesn't improve with rest. And they have pain at night that improves when they get up. 
And this is going to be more of like your reactive inflammatory low back pain. When you send these individuals back, if you feel like that's related, um, you're going to want to suggest an HL HBLA 27 uh, test. And that's going to be positive if they uh, have ankylosing spondylitis. So that's going to be the, the biomarker for it. Cool. And then if they come back to you, David, what tends to be what you do with these people? Is it mostly just kind of education on how to move? Is it like right. any specific? So I think uh, with these individuals, if they have a reactive arthritis of a immunological component, they'll usually be prescribed some type of anti-inflammatory medication from a rheumatologist. So you're going to want to refer these to a rheumatologist. Then once they have that medication, again, it's tough because you may not, I mean, you may not want them or their physician may not want them to start on that inflammatory medication just because there are other side effects such as increased immuno, like you're, you're going to compromise your immune system by taking an anti-inflammatory. You're going to inhibit muscle strength, bone growth, inflammation or things that we need in our body to build resistance resiliency to activity. So any type of long-term anti-inflammatory use is, you know, has its risk associated with it. So at that point, if it's a diagnosed ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis type of situation, they may or may not be prescribed medication. At that point, you just educate them on the pathophysiology, and then you educate them on the role of exercise in maintaining a pain-free state. Again, it's a difficult conversation because when you have that diagnosis, it's something that they're going to have to manage. There's really no cure necessarily. But at that point, I start to try to wean them to a comprehensive home exercise program that they can continue. And then I say, if your symptoms worsen or if you have any new changes, then come back in. Because again, these individuals can also have just your normal musculoskeletal pain that's unrelated to their diagnosed condition. Yeah. And then um, last thing I wanted to talk about here was just looking at the evidence as far as interventions. The main thing I wanted to touch on was the whole debate of TA versus non-TA. I think we touched on it in a little bit in the last episode. So first, let's start by looking at which maneuver increases the TA the most. And they looked at posterior pelvic tilting, abdominal bracing, and hollowing in maneuver. So the one that saw the highest activation was the hollowing in maneuver. That's bringing your belly button toward your spine. When you look at bracing, that's going to actually be just tightening of the abdomen. You'll usually get a bulging effect. So usually if I teach an ab activation, I don't ever really say TA activation. Just call it an ab activation. I will use the hollowing in maneuver. And then if they are of that flexion directional preference hinge point, I will encourage a slight posterior pelvic tilt to get toward neutral. Again, I don't think this is extremely important as far as isolating the TA. I'm not really a stickler on it. I think it's more important getting a good abdominal wall, hollowing in activation type maneuver and a slight posterior pelvic tilt if, if that's what they need. And I think it's just more about gradual loading to the area, desensitizing the, the area that's, that's sensitive. And then also just getting the core firing. I, I don't really care if other muscles turn on with TA or even really try to measure it. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel. Just kind of get them kind of kicking on some, some ab muscles. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I'll play around with like having them palpate where like in theory you're palpating TA kind of like just kind of like medial to like ASIS kind of in, in that area. But yeah, you know, I really, yeah, they're kind of kicking stuff on probably okay. Yeah. And then the other one that I really try to get firing is your multifidi, kind of the chicken and the egg scenario. They look at patients with low back pain. They say, well, your TA is not firing. Your multifidi is not firing. That's probably why you have low back pain. I'm a believer in the opposite. I think you generate a stress overload, that stress overload creates local muscle inhibition, and then your multifidi and you know global abdominal musculature are inhibited at least temporarily because when you create a strong contractile force, 
you're going to be exhibiting strong force over sensitized tissues. Your, your brain is trying to allow that area to resolve the, the inflammatory process and engage in the healing process. So forceful contractions to that area are going to be counterproductive to that. And I think that's just a mechanism that, that our body adapts. So I think it's going to be a symptom of a pain process. As far as a multifidi, I really like to use an anti-rotation mechanism. So this is going to be like your pal-off press where they're holding that band out in front of them. I usually go with a narrow stance to increase their core involvement. If you have a wider stance, you're going to redistribute that load to the lower extremity into the hips. And with the anti-rotation movement, essentially what you're doing is your obliques are resisting the rotation of the band. The obliques also create a flexion moment that has to be counteracted by the extension moment created by the multifidi. And that would be how the anti-rotation movement works. And then from that point, I'll just move to like my planks, my side planks, opposite arm, opposite leg, or dog type exercise. Yeah. And is it, is bridging also kind of kick on um, the multifidi kind of more than you would think? I think if I remember right, that was like kind of one of those like yeah. surprise exercises I didn't realize would kick on the multifidi as much as it does. So that, that, has historically been one that I tend to go to that bridge and then progressing to like a single leg bridge. Seems yeah, I think on that multifidi pretty good in, in individuals that aren't injured. I think that's one kind of caveat. Right, right. And um, I think it depends on your strategy too. Again, if you're, um, the multifidi is going to do the lumbar extension. So if you're in a, using a lumbar extension strategy to, to create the bridge, you might get a little bit more than if you posteriorly pelvic tilt and maintain that neutral spine and engage through a true hip motion. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on uh, the strategy. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I, I don't know what that study looks at if it's healthy versus injured. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And then as far as glute activation, I kind of do like bridges, clamshells, your traditional stuff. One that I like to add in in late stage is like a plank with alternating hip extension has some really high glute activation. And then I just start to work into functional movements, focusing on abdominal activation, just global strengthening, functional movement pattern strengthening for their desired activity. Is that typically what what you fall into, Mike? Similar type of yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, I'm kind of working with the more athletic population. So I got, you know, football players coming in with back pain. I'm going to eventually progress them into you know, some squatting, some deadlifting, things along right. those lines, getting them doing the things that I know that they're going to be doing as part of their training and making sure that they're doing that well. That, that You know, it, it looks good enough that I feel comfortable to say, okay, you can go train with the team. The kind of reverse of that is when you're working with kind of your older population, make sure that they at least understand how to lift and move and, and, and do things in, in ways that are going to be a little bit less stressful for their specific injury. You know, if they're if they're that person that tends to flare up with, you know, with flexion, you know, they're a little more susceptible to that. You just kind of get them lifting stuff with like a fairly neutral spine, kind of what we talked about before. Right. And I also incorporate some rotational strengthening, like your wood choppers, high to low, low to high. Again, once you're in stage two, it's kind of fair game. That's why I don't really get into stage two too much in these podcasts because it's, you know, there's really no wrong answer as long as you justify your intervention and functional for the patient and what they're trying to accomplish. Whether it's building resiliency or mimicking patterns that they do in real life, it's kind of all on the table. And I think that that covers it, Mike. Anything else that we, you wanted to touch on for interventions that we didn't really get to talk about? Not really. I mean, most of this stuff is more for like, I mean, with like, like super active population, you can just kind of get super crazy with it and, and have fun. Right, right. The last thing I, I guess that I just kind of was reminded of is when it comes to your athletic tasks, like your drop landing, your jumping, you actually don't want a lot of spinal stiffness. You want actually more of soft knees, soft hips, soft ankles, everything to kind of be a little bit more relaxed to absorb those ground reaction forces. Stiffness is actually going to be counterproductive during plyometric high velocity athletic movements. 
So that's just something to take into account. You don't really want to be incorporating heavy amounts of stiffening, spinal stiffening or core stabilization as far as incorporating it into those specific movements. Yeah. There's so much to talk about here. I know we only scratched the surface and there's just so much controversial ideas and theories. Hopefully we we shared all of the perspectives. We don't ever want to feel like we're only sharing one side. We want to try to consider all the options and then just do what's best for our patients. So that does it for season two, episode three, all things low back. 